Please be seated. Our story from Luke's gospel, it begins with two men who are headed in the wrong direction. It's a story of shattered expectations, an unexpected savior, and a hope they could never have imagined. But it begins with two men who are headed in the wrong direction. In order to understand why they were leaving Jerusalem, we need to rewind the tape one week and return to a scene that took place on another road. The road that winds down the Mount of Olives from the village of Bethany into the city of Jerusalem. One week earlier, Jesus had ridden down that road on the back of a donkey in a triumphal procession. The crowds had pulled branches off of the palm trees and were waving them like battle flags, crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. It was the beginning of the Passover feast. And Jews from all over the world were crowding into Jerusalem to celebrate. For three years, they'd been hearing about Jesus, the great rabbi from Galilee who healed the sick, who cast out demons, and who knew the scriptures even better than the Pharisees. Now, here he was, flesh and blood, coming into the city like a king. For centuries, they'd been waiting waiting for a king to free them from the shame and the pain of foreign rule. They'd longed for a liberator who would turn the Romans out and restore Jerusalem to the power it once had as the center of God's kingdom on earth. They had longed for peace, for freedom, and for honor among the nations. And they were hoping that Jesus was the man to bring it all about. But the week did not unfold as expected. The chief priest and his people threatened by Jesus conspired against him. Rumors were spread, false charges were brought, and Jesus' own teaching in the courts of the temple did little to win favor as he proclaimed God's judgment. In a few days, the tide had turned. On Thursday night, he was arrested. On Friday, he was marched out naked, whipped, and crowned with thorns, the ultimate mockery of his supposed status then he was crucified by late afternoon he was dead and then locked in a tomb surrounded by Roman guards those are the events that lead up to the scene on the road to Emmaus just a couple days after Jesus's death we don't know anything about Cleopas and the disciple who joined him other than what we learn in this passage we do know though that they were disciples of Jesus not among the 12 apostles, but they were close to Jesus nonetheless. They'd followed him, sat at his feet, and watched with growing anticipation as his influence spread, and they began to believe that their king had come. But all of their hopes, all of their hopes had been dashed. In a few short days, everything they dared to believe came crashing down around them. So they decided to leave Jerusalem. Now that the Passover feast was over, vast caravans of people were headed out of town. And Cleopas and the other disciple joined them, most likely heading home. But you know, they didn't leave Jerusalem unnoticed. Jesus saw them and he followed them. So let's turn to the text itself. Verse 13, page 885 in your red Bibles. 
That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what's this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. The verbs in this paragraph, they indicate that the men were engaged in a pretty intense discussion. Their emotions were running high. When Jesus asked what was so important, they simply stopped in the middle of the road. Overcome with a fresh wave of sorrow, they looked right at Jesus, but they couldn't see him. Verse 18, then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. But we had hoped. All of the pain and sorrow of these men is captured in that phrase. Their hopes for political redemption, for freedom from Rome, and for the reign of God's anointed. They'd been dashed. Jesus had disappointed them. But there was more to the story. So Cleopas continued. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, Some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they'd even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Now you might think that a glimmer of hope like this would have caused these two disciples to stay put, to wait, to see what happened, but they clearly had enough because of their shattered expectations. They turned their backs on the most important day in human history and they headed home. I want to pause at this point in the story in order to pull back and look at it from a wider angle. So one of the key features of the way that Luke tells this story is irony. There's the irony of the disciples seeing but not believing. Irony in the fact that Jesus is present but absent, that there's intimate fellowship but also incredible distance. The irony is thick because we as readers, we know exactly what's going on throughout the whole incident. We see things clearly while these two disciples are blind. But there's another layer of irony that is easily lost on us. Although we, the omniscient readers, see the folly and blindness of these two disciples, we are all too often unaware of our own. So does anyone else think that it's strange that Luke never tells us the name of the other disciple? It seems intentional. Because if he knows the name of Cleopas, surely he knows the other. And it makes me wonder It makes me wonder if this is part of the deeper irony of the passage and that perhaps we are meant to fill in the blank with our own name. Here's what I mean. 
We all come to Jesus with our own expectations. We have expectations about who he's supposed to be, what he's going to do for us, and what the world should look like if he's really in charge. We bring these expectations to him when, he, when we meet him for the first time, but also when we come to him after years of faith and trust. And these expectations, they frame our relationship with him. And when they're proven false, they have the power to blind us to the real Jesus. When I was in college, I was in love with a girl named Sarah. She was smart, she was godly, and we were both convinced that we were gonna get married. God had, after all, been at work in our relationship. We prayed together, we were involved in young life together. Our families knew and loved each other. And so it was that I began to build a future for us in my head and in my heart. Well, then she dumped me. (laughs) During a summer apart, she sensed that the Lord was saying to her that we were not supposed to get married. As you can imagine, I was crushed and I was confused. I started writing anguished poetry. It is okay to laugh at that. I, I read C.S. Lewis's book on loss, A Grief Observed. I groped around for explanation and for solace, but I found little of either. Because all of the pieces seemed to fit so well with Sarah, I convinced myself that I knew God's will. In the process, I spiritualized what was basically a human longing. These two disciples on the road to Emmaus had done the same. They knew Jesus well. But even so, they had forced him into the shape of their own expectations. They really, really wanted him to kick the Romans out of Israel and restore God's people to honor. They were tired of being marginalized, shut out of opportunities and ignored. They wanted the Pharisees and the Sadducees put in their place. They wanted to be able to feast in the house of God and have peace with those around them. But instead, Jesus had been killed just like all the other would-be kings. Worse, he had been shamed in public. And they, the disciples, had been shamed as, a, as well. Wallowing in shame, resentment, and an overwhelming sense of disappointment. What did they do? They turned their backs and they left. And having been so blinded by their expectations, they couldn't even see the real Jesus when he met them on the road. Now I wonder what expectations you might have that are blinding you to the real Jesus. I find that most of my misplaced expectations have to do with the fact that I don't want suffering, hardship, or discomfort to be part of this life of faith, but they are. And they're actually at the heart of it. Let's go back to the text. After listening to their story, Jesus replies in verse 25, and he said to them, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I wonder how many miles those men walked alongside him in silence, absorbing the scriptures that they knew so well in a fresh and shocking way. Their hearts, as we find out later, were burning as they listened. Whether with shame at their ignorance or excitement over new understanding, it's impossible to say. And the, the heart of what Jesus has to say to them is this, wasn't it necessary that the Christ should suffer these things in order to enter into glory? For some reason, in spite of Jesus' teaching over the past three years and in spite of having read the scriptures, these men never grasped the need for a suffering savior. For them, the Messiah was supposed to be all triumph and glory, but in reality, he'd been broken on a cross. In order to show them how the pieces fit together, Jesus took them on a tour of scripture. We've read some of these this morning. Surely these disciples knew the promises of Psalm 2 quite well. This was the Messiah they imagined after all. As David prophesies, the kings of the earth stand up and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. He who dwells in heaven shall laugh them to scorn. The Lord shall hold them in derision. I myself have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Be wise now, O you kings. Be warned, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord in fear and rejoice with trembling. Those were the promises that Cleopas and his friend knew so well. But they had probably neglected passages like Isaiah 53. The very different promise concerning the same Messiah. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, writes Isaiah. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here's the suffering servant, the savior who takes upon himself the sin and shame of the world, who by his wounds brings healing. But the men hadn't seen it. They just couldn't accept the fact that suffering and salvation could go together because they had boxed Jesus into their own expectations and were blinded as a result. Now some of you I know are wondering what happened to Sarah. It was so funny. <laughs> it's actually pretty funny. Three years after we broke up, she, she married one of my very best friends. <clears throat> the wedding was in the church where I had grown up and it was performed by my father. <laughs> Most of my family and friends were present. I wasn't. On the day of the wedding, I was actually 7,000 miles away and I was hiking in the Rift Valley of Kenya with John Stott and a few other people. We were taking a break from a busy trip <clears throat> where John was speaking and teaching in East Africa. 
And as an aside, if you don't know who John Stott is, then check out our blog from this week at htcraleigh.org and you can learn a little bit more. You see, just a few months after Sarah had shattered my expectations of happily ever after, I got a phone call and a job offer. The offer was to come and work as John Stott's study assistant in London, England. Attached to this offer, though, was one very unusual proviso. I had to be single. I couldn't marry, and dating was strongly discouraged because I needed to be unattached, completely flexible, and singular in focus. Single and heartbroken, I took the job. (laughs) Hiking that day in the Rift Valley, while my friends were getting married, I just marveled at God's grace. The suffering had been real. But the unexpected joy of God's provision had so far outstripped my feeble expectations that I had to laugh at myself, and I did. It took a few years for me to see the whole story because I was living it. It took a few years to understand that God had shattered my expectations in order to do something so much better than I could have imagined on my own. When Jesus took Cleopas and his friend on a tour of scripture, he was showing them how the story fit together. He was opening the eyes of their hearts to understand how suffering and glory go hand in hand. He was breaking down the walls built up by their misplaced expectations. And you know, they needed all of scripture to grasp this because Jesus only makes sense in light of the whole Bible. And the Bible only makes sense in light of Jesus' death and resurrection. But even after this, even after this biblical tour de force, the men were still blind to Jesus. They were blind, but they were hungry for more. So he joined them for dinner. Verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it's evening and the day's now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. It's not until they sit down face to face and Jesus prays that they see him for who he is. But before they can ask another question or even call him by name, Jesus disappears. As soon as their eyes are opened, they no longer need to see him. It's yet another irony in a story filled with irony. The men finally recognize Jesus in a moment of intimate fellowship as he takes on the duties of host and head of table. They recognize him as he calls on God the Father and feeds them from his own hands. Having explained from scripture the connection between his suffering and his glory, he reveals himself finally, not in an act of power, but in an invitation to fellowship. I imagine that as Jesus picked up the bread, they finally saw the scars on his hands. 
and that that's when the pieces all fell into place because that's what the suffering was all about. Jesus had bled and died so that men and women blinded by their own expectations could have their eyes opened and come to know him personally as a result of a love that took him to the grave. After supper was dramatically interrupted by Jesus' disappearance, Cleopas and his friend returned to Jerusalem. It was evening and it was getting dark. Any traffic still on the road was headed out of Jerusalem as festival goers made their way home. It was dangerous to walk at night, but these men didn't care. They were heading back to their friends with the good news that suffering does give way to glory and that Jesus is alive. So our story, our story began with two men headed in the wrong direction. It ends with them headed in the right direction. It's a story about the kind of Jesus we want and how this affects our ability to see who he truly is. It's a story about how expectations can blind us and how unmet expectations will either break us or crack us open to grace. It's a story of how Jesus pursues us along the path of our unmet expectations and walks with us even in the midst of our doubt and disappointment. It's a story about discovering through scripture a better ending to the story of Jesus and therefore of our own lives than we could ever imagine. And it's a story about finding the courage to walk in the dark on a dangerous road against the flow of traffic because you've grasped a greater hope. If you want to know what to do with the lessons of this story, let me encourage you in this way. Begin by submitting all of your expectations about who Jesus is and what this life of faith should look like to him. Trusting him to open your eyes where you're blind. Then read your Bible voraciously so that you can get to know Jesus and understand his will. As you do, set your hope on the glory that comes on the other side of suffering, both for Jesus and for us. And then step out into the darkness of this world with the courage that comes from a greater hope. Amen.